All right, well, good morning and welcome. I can wrangle y'all in and grab your attention. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 10. Kids cleared out, lots of open seats, so I think we're all good. Uh, We ran out of coffee almost, so I apologize. We're going to go to a third craft here soon. All right, does that sound good? So, cool. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and just to be amongst your people. uh, It's just a delight. People who love you and love one another and want to see your kingdom spread in Redmond and beyond. So, God, we just ask for your mercy upon this time. Um, Pray that our hearts would be open willing to receive from you what you want to share. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to us about cultivating a culture of goodness here at Redeemer's Church. Let me say that again. I want to talk to us about cultivating a culture of goodness here at the church. And now to do that, we've got to open up with just kind of defining some ideas, What, first and foremost, is culture? Now, Andy Crouch, who wrote a book on culture making, was head of Christianity Today, defines culture as this, what we make of the world. That's vague, (laughs) right? Like, okay, Andy, would you please give us a little more about what you mean? He further defines it as the name for our relentless, restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. So this idea of culture and culture making is to take sort of this raw material of the world that God has given to us as humans created in his image Thus, as image bearers, imaging him and wanting to go, create, to make, to do, to expand, and to make something else of it. Now, here is a truth and a reality about culture for all of us this morning. The culture in which we live teaches us how to behave and how to think. We learn what is right and wrong, good and bad, by living in a culture that defines these things. Culture socializes us into what is considered proper behavior. Now, this morning, when I talk about culture, I wonder where our minds race to. In fact, as I was thinking through what we're teaching this weekend, where does your mind go? There is this 10,000-foot level of culture where you can kind of see this kingdom of God perspective if you're in the church and a follower of Jesus and the culture of the world around us. And we can narrow that down even more so and think about American culture and what American culture teaches us from when we're first out of the womb and we're learning about the American dream and prosperity and all that this country has to offer us, its values, what we chase after, what we love, what we desire. We can go even smaller than American culture and we can talk about organ culture, right? It's different here than it is back when I was in Tennessee or if you came over from the East Coast. Central organ culture, that's different than organ culture, right? It's probably why a lot of y'all are here. (laughs) You're like, I didn't like it over there, so I came over here to be a part of this culture and specifically Redmond culture, and you can get even smaller. Your family has a culture. 
your work culture, and even your church has a culture. Now, how many of you have thought about the different cultures you participate in? Like right now, you are participating in a culture, this church. How many of us, when we begin to think about these things, wonder how compliant or complicit to the culture that we're in, that we're participating in, and we're just going along with it? How many of us think about what it means to rebel against a culture? What do you think about your own impact on a culture or its impact on you? Do you think about these things? And do you think about the change that you hope would occur inside of a culture? There are lots of different cultures that all of us today are interacting with at every single moment, whether you recognize it or not. It's an inescapable part of being human. And your participation in it, our disassociation from it, is still participating as you're saying, I don't want to have anything to do with culture. It's inevitable. All right. Why does this matter this morning? Well, we're in Acts, and we're looking at the story of the church, its birth as Jesus as the head, moving through the Holy Spirit, moving through the apostles, people coming to know Jesus. And when we think about the early church, often when people are dissatisfied with the contemporary church they're in, they think, oh man, if we could just get back to early church culture. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be lovely? You know, they didn't have problems with cliques, accepting people. They never had money cover-ups or racial issues. They never had people's needs not being met, except for that describes Acts 5 through 10. <laughs> Every one of those issues is in there. Ananias and Sapphira lying about selling property and how much money they gave to the church and how much money they held back to themselves in order to prop themselves up to be seen as important in their church culture. Or how about those Hellenists in Acts chapter 7, those widows that felt that the Hebrew Jews, which were different than the Hellenistic Jews, not by birth, but by language and culture they were raised in, they felt that they were being well, done wrong in the daily distributions. And so they raise up and they say, this is not fair what's going on amongst these people. Or all the eyebrows raised around this character named Saul that we looked at last week. Can we trust him? He's got a past. He's got a history. Should we let him into our gatherings and be a part of what we're doing here? Or this narrative we're going to see today of Cornelius. Uh, He's a Gentile. He's not one of us at all. We need to not have anything to do with that group of people. Surely God would not want anything to do with them. And you see, this early church had already begun to develop a culture that God needs to disrupt, that God needs to move in and do something. Let me read this to you. In Acts chapter 10, you're like, finally, yeah, we're getting there. Nine through 16. It says, the next day, as they were on their journey, so let me just give you a brief background. Peter, he's sitting up on a rooftop, 
praying, spending time with God, and he gets this vision sent to him. And this vision has food in it, and God says, go, these things aren't unclean. And he's like, no, surely they're unclean. And so God says, no, they are clean. I want you to go do something. So Peter has this vision. It says, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the house, talked about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill, eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask where Simon was called Peter, was lodging. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now skip down to verse 34. Peter goes there, Peter shares the gospel, and here is them hearing the good news. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let me read that again. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and hearing all who were oppressed by the devil, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who've been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge of living things and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Almost there, hang tight. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for some days. Just a few more verses in chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Whew. Holy cow. What a story filled with ups and downs and tension. And just for you guys to kind of get this background and the history of what's going on, Peter is in this trance and he's given this vision 
because God is about ready to disrupt what's going on within the church at this time. Primarily made up of Jews, the early church, beginning in Jerusalem, supposed to move to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, the church really had this inclusive, just themselves, excluding a lot of other people to some degree, idea, identity about them. In fact, it's not until persecution that the church begins to move out of its comfortable zone of Jerusalem and they go into Judea, Samaria, and then finally here in Acts chapter 10, they're beginning to move beyond those borders to this Gentile whose name is Cornelius. And there is this vision given to Peter. Why? It's pertaining to the Jews who we see God from Genesis to Jesus working through a family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on down to King David and through that lineage bringing up Jesus, God becoming king in Jesus. And then this outsider group known as Gentiles, anybody not a Jew. These are the two classifications and the Jews had become very, very exclusive, excuse me, to all the other groups around them. We don't want you. We're suspicious of you. We've been oppressed by you at different times. And we've kind of got these rules and laws that mean we have a division between us. And to give us some understanding on how deep this ran, let me share some things about how the Jews viewed Gentiles. A basic part of Jewish religion in the days of the New Testament was an oath that promised that one would never help a Gentile under any circumstances, such as giving directions if they were asked. How terrible is that? Back before smartphones, we went to L.A. on a honeymoon. This was 14 years ago next weekend, right? I lived in Southern California for four months, so obviously I knew everything about it. And we were going to go to the block in Orange. If you're familiar with it, it was kind of like a cool hangout, whatever. Um, Somehow we ended up in a neighborhood with a lot of bars on windows (laughs) and a stubborn husband who wouldn't pull over and ask for directions. (laughs) Once I finally did, we were very thankful that they gave us the correct ones. But could you imagine in that society, they wouldn't even give you just actually keep going deeper into this terrible neighborhood where things awful are going to happen to you. It says, but it went even as far as refusing to help a Gentile woman at the time of her sorest need, which is when she was giving birth, because the result would only be bringing another Gentile into the world. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. Hear this. If a Jew married a Gentile, the Jewish community would have a funeral for the Jew. (laughs) Wow and consider them dead. It was thought to even enter the house of a Gentile made a Jew unclean before God. Ancient Jewish writings tell us of a Gentile woman who came to a rabbi. She confessed that she was a sinner and asked to be admitted to the Jewish faith. The rabbi, she said, bring me near. The rabbi refused and simply shut the door in her face. Levitical law in Leviticus 20, 24 through 26 talked a lot about food cleanliness and the things Jews should and shouldn't eat, giving commands to Israel and talking about things that would make you unclean and these kosher laws were given. And whether you know it or not, because society has changed so much, table fellowship, like fifth Sunday, getting around a table, eating with somebody is a very intimate time and so much so back in that day. 
They considered it to be this time of coming togetherness, sharing with one another, uh, experiencing life together. So if you had different food laws, you definitely didn't share a table with one another. And so what Peter was about to do is going to be a big no-no in their belief system. It's something that didn't just happen that, hey, we're going to go have dinner over at this Gentile's house. Everybody would be going, uh, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Now, could you imagine what it'd be like with these two societies colliding? They certainly couldn't. In Acts 11, they criticized Peter for going to a Gentile's house. Little did they know that this Gentile actually receives the Holy Spirit, and Peter's going to say he's a part of what's going on here. That's going to be huge, revolutionary. We can't believe this is actually happening. These two societies coming together. Two societies that had opposed one another for centuries. How, how could you do this? And so what the church is going to have to figure out is a way to come together, Jew and Gentile. And whether you know it or not, so many of the epistles written in the New Testament, for example, Romans, is about bringing these two cultures together as one under Christ. Romans 16 and 15 talk heavily upon this. Why do you esteem one day above another? And if one person chooses to eat meat and the other abstains, what's it to you? God has made all these things clean. Just don't harm each other. Don't put burdens unnecessarily on one another. And so, so much of the New Testament is a working to bringing these two groups together as a new humanity, a new community for good under Christ the King. But how will they do this? How can they come together for good? And that's what I want to focus the rest of our time on here this morning. God wants to bring these cultures together for good. How do we create, cultivate a culture around goodness? Now, there's a word I want to share with you guys. It's a Hebrew word. Anybody know Hebrew? Oh, yes! Shana, I knew you knew Hebrew, so correct me if I'm wrong. All right. There's a Hebrew word called tov. You guys say that with me? Tov. Don't say tov. Say tov when you see this word. Right? Now, you may be familiar with this word if you're Shana. All right. You may be familiar with this word if you have listened to the Bible Project. They talk a lot about tov and ra and tovu, vahu, and all this other Hebrew stuff. You may also be familiar with this word. Anybody fans of Scott McKnight? He's an author, theologian. Oh, just Carson. Nobody else is going to know what I'm talking about then, which is great. This is going to be all new information to you because I purchased his little book called A Church Called Tov. Well, what's this mean? Well, before I tell you what it means... First and foremost, the word tov appears over 700 times in your Bible. Do you think that's important? Yeah, you could actually call the Bible a book of tov. <laughs> okay? It's really, really important. Tov is the Hebrew word for good, goodness, beauty. A church called tov would then mean a church that's about goodness. Let me read this scripture to you. It comes from Amos 5, 14 through 15. Seek good, or tov, not evil, which is the word ra, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as he says he is. Hate evil, ra, love 
good. Love, tov. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. There's five things I want to talk about to you concerning the word tov. First, God is tov. God is goodness. We read it this morning. Psalm 119, 68. You are tov. And you do tov. Exodus 33, 19. Moses had interceded on behalf of the Israelites who had just rebelled against God horrifically, creating an idol and worshiping that God. And he intercedes and is praying. And at the end of this segment, God says, Moses, what do you want? If God said you could ask anything of him, what would you ask for? Right? A lot of us are just thinking the person in Maine who won the 1.4 billion lottery this weekend. Moses says, I want to see you. I want to see your face. And what the scripture tells us is God passes his tove, his goodness, in front of Moses. God is tove. Number two, God does tove. At the end of that famous psalm of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he say at the very end of it? Taste, excuse me, surely your tove, your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God does tove. So he is tove. He does tove. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is tove, that he is good. Number three, what God creates is tove. All of Genesis 1, at the end of every day, what does God say? And it was? And it was? Ah, yes, and it was? Tove. It was good. And then at the very, very end of everything he created, he says it's very tove. It's very good, this beauty of all that I have done. So Genesis is repeating that. And so what that means is tove is this well-crafted work. When something works the way it's supposed to, it's tove. When parents parent how they should, it is tove. When a steak is not undercooked, or excuse me, overcooked, right, Andrew? When a steak is not overcooked, it is tove. Yeah, when it's bleeding a little bit, mm-hmm, still mooing. When the Blazers won last night, it was so tove. So tove. Last week's coffee was not tove. It was from Starbucks. This week's coffee, it was Tove, right? We got Sergio's coffee back the way it should be. Now, listen, Tove, Tove is when a church is functioning as it should function, a culture of goodness, not raw evil. When we live according to God's design, that is Tove. When we become a people of love, loving God and loving others, that is Tove. Number four, Tove is visible, Tove is active, tangible, embodied. We just read it, Acts chapter 10. Jesus went around doing tove. He went around doing goodness. Jesus didn't just do goodness. He is goodness. He is tove. And when we see Jesus, we see tove in action. And so when we do the things that Jesus did... Like we talk about here every single week, we are participating in, we are practicing, we are doing tov. Peter says to live lives 
such lies that are good among the Gentiles, among the pagans. 1 Peter 2.12. We too are to practice tov. And fifth, finally, tov resists evil. That tree in the garden, Genesis 2, it is the tree of tov and ra. And so on one hand, tov is against what is bad and rebellion. But on the other hand, tov is also when things are going how they ought to go. So we can think of it in both ways. We are designed by God to do tov. Ephesians 2.10 says, you are his workmanship, his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he prepared for us to walk in. We are called to resist what is not tov, to resist evil, and walk in the spirit. What does that have to do with church culture? Let's be honest. The church of Acts was not always tov, were they? I mean, they were not treating the widows that were Hellenistic the way they were treating the other widows that were Hebrew. That's not tov. They are ostracizing, are purposely not going out to the Gentiles. I don't know why. I don't know why it's taken this long or a vision when it was already kind of the plan outlined by God for them to go there. They've not participated actively in that till God sends them. And then they question it. They have a deep hatred for another people group. That is not Tov. And we see it in the New Testament. In addition to that, when we survey the Western evangelical church, not all, but many that make the headlines, they are not a culture of goodness, are they? We've actually seen a lot of raw, evil, injustice, money laundering, lying, sexual immorality. We can go down the list. Cover-ups, power structures, Systems that actually put people down when that's not what God intended as he leveled the playing field. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, male nor female. And he's giving this in Paul, this great declaration of what the gospel has done. And then somehow the church decides to invert that and say, we're going to devise power structures to have people of importance. They're going to be the ones that everybody sees and knows about. And it has not gone well. I'm not saying all churches are of that nature, but I do believe as fallen people, at some point or another, though we may not all live it all the time, churches fall into this, and it's not tov. There's an unhealthy culture that has crept into the church. Now, here's the interesting thing about culture and what this has to do with us here this morning, because we can look at leaders and we can say, it's their fault. They did it. Scott McKnight, in this book, A Church Called Tove, he says this. I think I got this quote up here, Sergio. Like any organization, every church is a distinct culture, formed and untried and perpetuated by the ongoing interaction of leaders and congregants. So it is true that leaders lead and thus have a decisive and sometimes overriding voice in the formation of a culture. It's more accurate to say that leaders and congregations form the church's culture together. So check this slide out. I didn't make it. I stole it. Yeah. Leaders. Yes. Leaders at whatever church you're going to, in any organization you're a part of, whether it's a church or not, they're going to set, to some degree or another, the culture. How? They're going to tell you the narratives. 
We have a narrative at our church. We have a story we tell. It's the story of Jesus, yes, but we also have the narrative of who Redeemer's church is. Then there's actions that play out from its leaders, teachings like we're doing now and why we do the things that we do, why we do things on Sunday morning, how we do them, what we do throughout the week. Then there's policies given, and that goes to the congregation. Now, here's the interesting part. Most people stop on this first half. The congregation, though, then retells those narratives, acts it out, teaches it to other people, shares the policies, thus reinforcing whatever the leaders are doing in a church. Go to this next slide. Pastors and leaders, narrative, exercise a preliminary voice in telling the narrative, acting out the Christian life for others to see, the Christian faith is how it is to be lived, that's the teaching, articulating the policies, McKnight goes on and says, they exercise formal authority and power to create and maintain the church's culture, ideally in a good way. Next slide. So, the congregation, both individually, you, and collectively, us, right? Embrace the culture, but begins to reshape it. You can reshape the narrative, act out the Christian life for others to see, reteach the Christian faith, Rearticulate the policies. The congregation exercises its own authority and peer to shape and maintain the culture. What does this mean? A church culture is not just set by your leaders. Over time, it's the interaction of leaders and congregations, the congregation and leaders that forms a church culture. In that sense, everyone in church is complicit in whatever culture is formed, good or bad. We have a church culture here. You walked into this building, and you can feel it. You can sense it. Maybe it's your first time here, and you're trying to figure out what are they all about? What do they want to promote? What's their thing? We all walked into churches, and we're like, that, thing's, that church's thing is the music, or the preacher, or the coffee, or the building, or the people. And we can go on and on about what a church culture is about. Whatever it is, though, leaders set that tone And then the congregation affirms it by seeing a part of it, being complicit to it, encouraging it. You assist in the formation of the culture that you're in. Take marriage, for example. You as an individual come together with another individual. I didn't own cowboy boots before I met my wife, Jessica. (laughs) I certainly never banded a goat before I met my wife (laughs) named Jessica. If you don't know what banding a goat is, look it up afterwards. <laughs> I just filtered out a lot, so <laughs> you can thank me or not thank me later. <laughs> All right, what happened? Well, my wife and I come together. 14 years into marriage, she's rubbing off on me, I'm rubbing off on her, and we're forming a new culture for our family in marriage. See how that happens? I'm taking her things. She's taking my things, I think. And (laughs) now we've got this new culture. And by staying with her, I'm saying, yes, this is good. And it's rubbing off in a good way as we reshape one another. And that mutual shaping forms hopefully a culture of love. However, that same process can happen in a bad marriage. Except you and your partner are now shaping each other in negative ways. And it forms a toxic culture. As we look at Acts 9 through 11, 
Peter, this leader in the church, and he comes back and he announces what God is doing. So that is the narrative. And the action is them embracing them. And he teaches the people that he goes back to about what has happened and sets this policy in the congregation at first that Peter goes back to is going, I don't think so, Pete. I think you're wrong. There's no way that God did that or wants to include them. And so the congregation has a choice. They're either going to accept or reject what Peter has shared. You, the people at Redeemer's Church, you have an opportunity each and every week to say we're embracing what's going on here or are not at all. And that is how leaders are held accountable. This idea, truth, they take narrative, run with their actions, followed by teaching and setting policy, and then the cycle continues. It's happening all throughout Acts. And what I'm trying to get across to you is when you look at Redeemer's church culture, not big church, we're just saying Redeemer's church culture. If you are a part of this church, and there's things that are not personal preference, things that you just kind of wish we did or that your old pastor did that was so much smarter or better or brighter or not as good as your current pastors here at this church, what have you, right? not peripherals, not non-important things, but if there's things that are not creating a culture of good here, you're either complicit to what's going on in this church, you withdraw from this church, don't come back, or you become a disruptor, and that's not a bad thing as I'm going to share you become a disruptor. See, if you don't like something, you stay put and put up with it, shut your mouth. That's the motto of some churches. You leave, withdraw. That's the model of a lot of people. I don't want to deal with it. I just want to pull back. I want to go somewhere else. Or you can disrupt. And let me tell you something. Change is spurred on by the disruptors. Any of you watch the new Knives Out on Netflix? Cool. <laughs> me too. I thought it was terrible. Movies aren't as good as what they used to be. Anyways, we watched it. There was a scene, and the scene talked about how this eclectic group of people had come to know one another. And one of the main leads, he went on this whole monologue of how we're all disruptors in our industry. And because we're disruptors, we rose to the top, and everybody knew who we were and became prominent in whatever it was we were doing. For whatever reason, that term, that idea, has stuck with me since we watched Knives Out. Disruptors. Now, you can be a disruptor for Ra, or you can be a disruptor for Tov. You can be a disruptor for evil, which is self-serving, self-preserving, putting yourself above any and everyone else to promote who you are and your ego. Or... Or you can be a disruptor for Tov, which you're going to see is a whole different kind of servant model for each and every one of us, a whole different kind of loving. When we look at Acts 9 and 10, who are the disruptors? Well, first you should say Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. The Holy Spirit, yes, moving and working. But what happens? The Spirit comes into Paul's life. Was Paul a disruptor in the church? Pfft, heck yeah, he was. Paul's a huge disruptor. He's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. They didn't really like Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, one who possibly could have converted to Judaism and practiced the faith. So someone accepted, maybe even possibly circumcised, I don't know, went through baptism, baptismal ritual to become a Jew. Sure, a proselyte, maybe we don't get those details. Paul just goes to the full-on Gentile pagan worshipers. And he starts sharing the gospel with them, and everybody's going, 
We don't know what to do with this or this guy, but something's happening. Peter is a disruptor in this story. He goes to Cornelius as God has called him against what even some of the other apostles would have wished he would have done. He's a disruptor in a good way. Ananias in Saul's story, Saul, who once he comes to faith, we're going to see his name used differently in the word of Paul, name of Paul. Ananias, the Holy Spirit says, hey, you know that guy Saul that's killing everybody, that loves Jesus? I want you to go talk with him. He's one of us now. If Ananias came to me in like a pastoral moment, I'd go, it's your funeral, dude. (laughs) Like, I don't think that's a good idea, but he's a disruptor. He's going against the norms. And this is important for us as we see people like this in the scriptures, in churches, disrupting for good. Look, to change culture, if you look around, again, just narrowing it down to church culture here, You cannot just critique or criticize. And you cannot simply withdraw. That's what we do. And what actually happens is our critiquing turns to criticism then turns to withdrawal. That's the pattern that happens in church people's lives. Critique it. It's not really that bad, but I'm just critiquing. I'm just being a little, just a little here, a little. Then it's a critical spirit. And then it's a, I'm just out. They can't do it very well at all. Christians are notorious for this. We do it with the world. I can't believe what the world is doing now. I can't believe what they're embracing. There's all this kind of talk of how we can critique and criticize the world, but there's rarely any disruption. Maybe stubborn rejection, withdrawal. That's not going to help shape culture. That is not going to help shape culture. What if Peter was like, Nah, God, I'm just going to pull back from this one. I don't like what you're sharing. Or how could you do that? What if in Acts 7, those church leaders said, sorry, widows, we're not really concerned with you and your worries. No, prompted by the Spirit, there is good, healthy disruption. To change culture, becoming a church culture of tov, tov, excuse me, or goodness, there's a fundamental rule. The only way to change culture is to create more of it. I didn't write that. Andy Crouch did. So you can go yes and amen. The only way, the only way to change culture is to create more of it. Just think with me. The Jews. Jesus dies, resurrects. He doesn't just kind of hold on to this old thing, does he? The birth of the church is a new formation of what God is doing in spreading the kingdom of his goodness. If we want to see culture change, can't critique it, can't criticize it, can't just withdraw from it, but we ought to seek making more of it, new culture, and that's what's happening in Acts. The third thing in that is disruptors are not division causers. Disruptors and people who cause division are very different, and we've spoke extensively on this at different points in our church People that cause division just have an ax to grind or don't like something that's on the peripheral or don't like how, whatever it is. I don't even want to pick things out because you could be like, is he talking about me? No, I'm not talking about you. There's just a lot of generalities that church people are grumpy about, like carpet, right? You guys ever heard that? You change the carpet and everybody's like, why'd you do that? It's just church culture, I guess. There's all of these things on the outside that cause kind of division and things that shouldn't, but there are godly disruptors. And you're going to have this 
drilled into your head. Disruptors who see injustice in the church and say, we need to seek justice. Disruptors who see evil and say, that's not right how that person was treated. Disruptors reject the bad and pursue truth and righteousness, putting people first. So as we close out, if we're going to build a culture of Tove, what does that look like? Sergio, if you could flash up that last slide I have. This won't take long, I promise. And, and what I hope to do at some point is to just take a, a pause, a break from Acts, and talk on each one of these. But this is Scott McKnight's idea of nurturing habits of goodness for a church culture. Nurture empathy. Resist a narcissist culture. Can the pastoral ministry be a narcissist culture? Yes. Say it louder with me. Yes. Yes. What's a, we can go through all of that later, right? We need to, as a people, nurture empathy, making it about others, not ourselves. Nurture grace. That means resisting a fear culture. What's a fear culture? A fear culture is one that's not willing to say, I, Brett Anderson, am a sinner who has failed in multiple moments of leadership at different times in the history of our church, and I'm willing to talk and acknowledge that. And by God's grace, I'm still accepted, loved, and belonged in this church community and prayerfully in the pastoral position. Right? That, that is saying, I don't fear the outcome because I know what God has done for me so we can be a grace-based culture. Put people first. What does that mean? Of course we do that. Resist institution creep. Is the institution, Redeemer's Church, more important than people? Is the way we do things in here and how things look and how things function and operate, I've told you guys a million times, I'm a hot mess. It's amazing we have a gathering every week, all right? Without the help of so many volunteers and people structuring those things, this thing is just a circus, but it's not by God's grace, okay? But put people first. We don't want the institution to be the most important thing. The institution is not going to continue on into eternity, but people are. Okay? Put people first. Tell the truth. <laughs> Resist false narratives. He talks about Yom Kippur and truth-telling, and that's a whole sermon in and of itself. We can't go there. We need to be a, tell- a-, a truth-telling culture here at Redeemers, even when it hurts. Love and truth. Nurture justice means we need to be fair to everybody. That means to resist the loyalty culture, meaning if you're loyal to leadership and leadership is failing and you just say, well, I'm just going to protect and guard, that's not healthy in a church culture. We need to nurture justice, pursue justice, and see justice within our own culture. Nurture service, resist the celebrity culture. I will say this over and over and over again. I am not the most important person here. I left for three months, and it was great. You guys survived. You did well, okay? That is my idea of a church that's running well. When people can step out and things can continue on, we don't want the celebrityism that ruins the church in so many aspects and the nurture Christ-likeness, resist the leader culture, right? The leader culture where the leader is the most important person. So Redeemers, how are we doing with this? Culture of goodness, embracing outsiders, not thinking we are superior. Are we a culture growing in grace and able to share our failures 
and not fear that if we open up with one another that we're going to be rejected or pushed out. We're going to be like Ananias bringing Saul in. We're going to be like Peter bringing Cornelius in and saying, you're welcome here. You're loved. You're embraced. I don't care about your past. I want you to know the love of Jesus. I want to show you, Tove. Are we putting people over systems? Are we growing in honesty and truth-telling? Are we growing and pursuing justice when there's wrongdoing in our midst? Are we nurturing service? Are we nurturing Christ-likeness? I hope our answer is yes to those things. And it boils down to, well, how is any of that or all of that even possible? You have homework if you want. You can read Matthew 8 and 9, two whole chapters this week. And I want you to notice how Jesus doesn't just do Tov, but he is Tov. He's approachable, willing, compassionate, humble in these stories. He teaches, encourages, admonishes, and challenges. He heals, he forgives, he restores because he sees and listens. He models Tove as a resistance to evil, touching the unclean and dining with tax collectors, disreputable sinners, confronting evil in people's hearts casting out evil spirits, healing the sick, and then going to towns and villages and announcing the good news of, of the kingdom. This is what Tov goes and does. Redeemers, process this. Think about this. Buy the book. Be encouraged by McKnight. See it in the scriptures. We need to continue to formulate a culture of Tov here at Redeemers. Live it out. And when we see evil, injustice, or wrongdoings. To be willing to admit failure, to embrace grace, to walk in truth. Let's pray. Lord, I think this is, for our church, a very important word. As we desire to walk in your goodness and to do your goodness, to portray your goodness to the world around us. May we be filled with the Holy Spirit to do this. May we explore these themes and ideas in the scriptures and be encouraged by them. May we confess our faults and our failures and our sins and admit when we're wrong and graciously forgive and accept and feel a sense of belonging because of who you are. May appropriate consequences be played out in the situations that need to be played out and justice to be had. God, we want to submit ourselves to you and what you want to do in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you'd stand with me, we're going to respond to his goodness. One of the best ways to respond to his goodness is to sing it and declare it, to shout it from the top of our lungs that he is good. We're going to open the communion tables as we sing this one song. We're going to have communion, then we're going to sing one more song, and we'll break for that moment to just together corporately take communion. There's an offering box to give to what God is doing here. But don't miss this opportunity to respond to him to declare his goodness. Let's worship him now.